Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, so much for our church and for the people that you have assembled together and how, uh, Lord, we're so messed up. Uh, Lord, we have so many problems and issues so many times. And uh, yet, God, you have told us how much you love us. You've explained it to us. You've demonstrated it for us when you died on the cross. And God, our God in heaven, our Father, we, we trust you with our lives. We trust you that you would speak to us with your word. And we ask you that this time in the word right now would be truly meat to our soul, that it would be uh, deep and powerful and living water just poured into our thirsty souls. Lord, I, I love that song that we sang, that we're a desert soul. We're dry bones without you. And so, Lord, we want to run towards you. God, we do that in faith right now. Lord, we, we open up your word and we trust, God, that you have for us um, a special and specific word, a, a message for us, Jesus. Lord, I place myself before you, and in humility I ask, Father, that you would use me, God, because I, I am certainly not worthy to even be called your son. Yet, God, you, you've chosen to use me thus far, and I ask you would continue. You've chosen each one of us, and you've used each one of us in such powerful ways, God. And I, I think around, I look around the room, and I think about my brothers, and I'm so blessed and humbled to, to know the men and women here in this room. And God, we just, we, we give you this time, and we pray that you would grow us. I pray that you would identify things in our heart that are not right, things in my soul where I do not trust you as I should. And I pray that you'd help me have the courage to repent of those things and to come to you. Father, we, we turn our eyes, our attention towards you. We, I pray you'd make us sensitive to your Holy Spirit and you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God helps those who help themselves. That's how the saying goes. At least that's what Ben Franklin said. He's the one who is purported to have uh, said that saying very first back a couple hundred years ago in English, and, and that was his idea. He says, I want to see you put your back into it to give God your best. But the phrase, God helps those who helps themselves, it, it's not biblical, it's not what the Bible actually tells us. It's a popular motto that we hear today. I've heard it many times as I was growing up. And it emphasizes the importance of self-initiative. And it, it's a humanistic in its philosophy. Jay Leno and his chin asked some random people on the street. <laughs> asked some random people on the street the name of one, to name one of the Ten Commandments. He just walked around and said, Hey, what's one of the Ten Commandments? And the most popular response given to him was, God helps those who help themselves. Which shows you how thickly and ingrained this philosophy has become in America. And I understand the, world, the reason the world has this philosophy. It, it provides a road for us to walk down to get our blessings. It says, I can do it. It's possible to hike this road. I have it in me. Look how good I can do. I might need God a little, but I need me a lot. 
The truth for today is, however, that God does desire to help us. But the extent of his help is either all or nothing. All or nothing. He's not an assistant. It's not those who help themselves that he gives his grace to. It's God helps those who humble themselves. And that's the title of today's message. God helps those who humble themselves. Humility is an internal, total dependence on God. Helping yourself is really self-reliance. I can do this if I just try a little harder. It's another way of saying pride. And God doesn't have a problem with helping you. He has a problem with you not wanting his total help, his total takeover of your life. That's where God's issue comes. And I say that because James 4.6 and 1 Peter 5.5 both quote Psalm 37, which says, God helps or gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Being blessed or getting God's help does not depend on you, on what you bring to the table. It's about God's unchanging love for you. Will you receive his help or his blessings? Will you accept it? Will you ask for it? These are the questions we're wrestling through today. Will you relate to God in humility, being dependent on his help or grace? No matter what the issue is, no matter what the problem may be, no matter how much you may seem to have it under control, are you still going to go to him? Or are you going to just say, I got this, God. I got this. I know how to handle this one. Watch how good I can do. Well, that brings us to our text in Genesis chapter 16 today. As we have been going through Genesis, we've been going verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and we've been exploring and seeing how God has been taking Abraham and leading him and teaching him how to live by faith. And he's been teaching him a lot of things. But we've seen, and we see now in verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And we've, we've seen this problem before, but here we're reminded that the problem is still there. God's promise has been made. In chapter 12 and chapter 14, we read that your descendants shall be like the stars of the sky. And that through one of his children, the Messiah would come. So we've had all these promises God's been promising, promising, promising. And Abraham has, has believed, but he's struggled. And his wife believed and struggled. And they both have, have ah, I'm not sure if I really believe all the way. And, and now they're getting old. Now they're getting really old. And this promise that God has made is all that Abram really wants out of his life. It's just a son. Just a son, a child that could bring salvation to the world is what God said. It's a fix for all the fighting and the pain and the suffering and the curses and everything he sees in the world that's messed up. God has told him that his son is going to be the solution to that or one of his seed, one of his sons is going to fix all that stuff. So in fact, the fact that he's getting really old and Sarai is getting super old and they still don't have a kid, is weighing heavily on Abram's heart. So I want us to get that picture. I want us to understand where he's at. 
In fact, let's, let's internalize it because you also have promises like Abraham. You also have a promise that God will bring victory into your life. You have a promise that no sin can dominate your life when you're in Christ Jesus. But are we experiencing that? I know when I find myself in sin, when I spot sin in my life, it devastates me. And I think, God, why? Oh, I'm so frustrated and I'm so brokenhearted and I'm sorry and I'm guilty. And I think in my mind, God, why am I not seeing your promise fulfilled? Because you say in your word that I will have victory over sin. So what is lacking? Why, why do I have to wait? You have a promise that God loves you and has planned out good works to be accomplished during your life. That you will be used and you'll be blessed. Those are promises that God has made in your life. But have you, have I lost hope in these promises? I know there have been times in my life where I have. There's been times I thought I am never going to achieve victory. I am never going to see this area of my heart change, this area of my life change, or this circumstance be righted, be fixed. There's times where we lose hope. We lose faith. And so I, I understand what Abraham is going through right here. And so it says, keep going in Genesis 16, it says, And she, Sarai, had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So during the time of trusting in the flesh, remember Abraham, as soon as he got into the promised land, he set up shop and he's in his tent and he's worshiping the Lord. And all of a sudden there's a famine. God brings a test. God brings a trial. And Abraham's like, oh, I'm out of here. Immediately, he took off. Where did he go? Down to Egypt. It was a type of the world. So Abraham's trust in the Lord really faltered right there. He started wandering. He went down into Egypt. So, okay, I know God can't take care of me here. I'm freaking out because there's no rain. I'm going to die, and God wouldn't have let him die. But he took off anyway. He went down into Egypt. He totally screwed up in Egypt, man. You remember the story? He said, Pharaoh, this is my sister, not my wife. Pharaoh's like, hubba hubba, I want her. He took her. God plagued Pharaoh and sent him away, rebuking Abraham, saying, Abraham, you're an idiot. And Abraham said, I've really messed up. And Abraham's wife had some other choice words that aren't recorded in the Bible for him. So during this time that they were in Egypt, one of the things Egypt gave to them was Hagar. And so you could look at it a couple ways. You could say, well, she's a, she's a result of Abraham trusting in the flesh. She's a result of his mistake. He, just like a cancer he picked up along the way. Or you could look at it like this. That she was a soul that was rescued graciously by God from a pagan society to walk with God's people. I'm inclined to see her as a soul rescued from the world from Egypt. That's how I'm going to kind of look at it today. So verse 2, so Sarai said to Abraham, see, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. 
There's a Jewish tradition saying that before they came to live in the promised land, Abraham and Sarai regarded their childlessness, their barrenness, as punishment for not living in the land. But now they had been in the land for 10 years and they still had no children. And Sarai probably felt it was time to do something. After all, doesn't God help those who help themselves? Again, that verse is not in the Bible. I heard it growing up. I heard it on TV. Robert Schuller uh, died last week, and he was famous for this positive thinking theology. But if you look at it carefully, you'll see that it's just self-reliance packaged as positive thinking. Unless you think that I'm slamming him the week after he died, I will tell you that I do the same thing on a regular basis in my own heart. I do it. And we're called, like I said, we're called to contend for the faith. I'm called to contend in my own mind. I'm called to argue with myself. Am I trusting in God or am I trusting in my flesh, in my own efforts, in my own abilities? We're told to argue with ourselves about that in Jude 3 and Jude 4. And I get tired of waiting for God to work. And I look to see if I can hurry the process along. Do you? I do it all the time. Sarai asks, how can I make this happen? She wants to see the promises of God come to fruition in her life, and isn't that a good thing? But she's not patient enough to wait for it. The ends don't justify the means with God. A common misunderstanding of God's will is that we can make it happen. That it depends on us. Whereas Jesus said, though, in John chapter 15, that without me, you can do nothing. And that doesn't mean without my assistance, you can do nothing. Actually, it means without my life and my power completely taking over your life, you can do nothing. Well, that sounds like, that sounds like total surrender. That sounds like my life is just like killed. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what Jesus asks for. Everything. Your whole life. And that's why Paul so forcefully declares that as we looked at last week, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. In Galatians 2.20. So that's how Jesus says it happens. And he was talking about bearing fruit, seeing God's will in your life. Sarah wants to bear some fruit, right? I want to see my life filled with fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, all the fruits that are described for us. I want to see those things in my life more than anything. So aren't those good? So how can I be more fruitful? He wants me to be fruitful. The answer is always counterintuitive, and the answer is to abide in Jesus. Stay in that place of trusting and loving him. Never think that it depends on your figuring it out. Because it doesn't. God will make you faithful. That is his promise. But it's not a promise to those who help themselves. It's not a promise to those who work harder. It's not a promise made to those who are the best among us. It's made to those who are the most trusting. 
those who will come to him. So Sarah knows that Abraham would probably never suggest such a thing as we're reading right here. So she provides the option to him. Even if you would never think of a way to trust in your flesh, people will line up to help you figure out a way. Sarah is also, look, she's blaming the Lord for the situation and she's not thanking God for it. Whereas we read in James chapter 1, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea dross, uh, tossed by the wind, driven and tossed by the wind. He's saying, don't doubt that God will provide 100% of what you need if you ask him. 100% of what you require for the challenge before you will be given by God to those who ask him. And rely upon him. Now this is such a freeing truth. Because we don't have to provide 50-50. It's not a 50-50 thing. People think marriage is 50-50. And I bring my half and she brings her half. And then we'll be happy. And that's not true, is it? Because we know marriage has to be 100% and 100%. You can't be faithful 50% of the time. That's recipe for a disaster. No, it's called faithfulness for a reason. It's 100%. And that's what God's saying. You don't have to provide 100% or 50% or 10% or 1% of the work in your life or, the, or to earn blessings. You have to ask and trust my 100% and I'll give it. That's his promise to us. I will give it. Sarah thinks she can figure out a way to get her blessings. Anyway, except just asking the Lord and waiting for him to answer, that has worn out its welcome in Sarah's heart. And walking in faith, my brothers and sisters, is difficult. It is tough. Because there will come challenges, and the flesh is like, here's an open door. Here's how you can make it happen on your own. Here's what you can do. And the way of faith says, no, I'm going to trust the Lord. Well, look what happens. Abraham, it says, heeded the voice of Sarah. Bro, come on. Husbands, do you see this? I've got a question for the husbands or the guys who want to be husbands or anyone who knows a husband. Are you listening to God's voice or your wife's voice? You are called to lead and not heed like he does here. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't listen to your wife. Because obviously that's the first thing that comes to wife. Don't heed my wife. All right, this pastor is who I'm coming to. Honey, we're coming here every week. No, that's not what it means. It means the opposite. You have to listen so carefully that you can tell where your wife's heart is, husbands. Because you're called to lead. She is not the one who's supposed to be telling you what's right or what your family's supposed to be doing. She is the one who's supposed to be receiving of your leadership. She needs your leadership, your bravery, 
So husbands, if you have just been listening to your wife for what you're supposed to do, repent. Say, God, that's my job. Men, you have to know and be able to discern what the advice coming to your ears is telling you to do. Is it telling you to trust God's word and God's promises, promises, or is it telling you to trust in your fleshly abilities and wisdom? That's your responsibility, men. And women, too. But in the family dynamic, men, that's your job. You have to take every conversation back to the word. And if you do this in love, it can be an awesome opportunity to encourage your wife to trust in the word of the Lord, to trust in the promises. Here's a secret, men. She doesn't think you're that smart. And here's another secret. You're not that smart. But that's why we have God's word to look at and trust in. None of us knows the future. But God's word prepares us for the future. It's a guide and a light for our path. And Abraham could have done so much better. We'll look at that in just a second. Verse 3, it says, Then Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to Abraham to be his wife. After Abraham had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So again, they've been waiting 10 years. That's a long time to wait. They get antsy, and so they desire to help God out. They think that God needs this little help, and through their human eyes, they don't see any other way. They don't see how it could work. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Bro, really? You can do things in your flesh. The world is great at figuring out how to get things done with greater effort, better focus, more education, and deeper desire or deeper dedication. And their way might even be more fun. Abraham chose that way. He chose it. Then the worst thing in the world happened to his beloved wife, Sarah. Hagar got pregnant, which proves that the problem was with her. It wasn't with Abraham's body, it was with Sarah's body. Which shows us that when you try to fix things in the flesh, it will only reveal your own problems in the end. It never hides them like we thought it would. We can think so many times, oh, I can just kind of cover up my insufficiencies by doing this, by working things this way, by twisting it this way, by being a spin doctor. And yet, it only ends up revealing our issues. And when she saw that she conceived, this is Hagar, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abraham, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So Hagar starts despising Sarah. And Sarah thought there would be no consequences to trying her hardest or, or to not trusting in the Lord or not waiting for the Lord's promise to be fulfilled. She didn't think there would be any consequences because consequences, as we learn here, are always unseen, unintended, especially when it comes to faith. Sarai thought this little plan of hers would result in her being blessed. 
obtaining the promises of God, but it actually brings a bunch of curses. Then she blames Abram. And she has a point. Men. It doesn't take away her fault, but look carefully at what she's saying. Abraham could have and should have been able to protect her from this dependence on the flesh and reliance on her own efforts. He should have said no. He could have said no. He should have said, hey, let's trust in the Lord. Let's wait for him. I'll continue praying till he answers for me. I'll continue asking him And I believe that he's going to answer me just like he said he would. Sarah, we don't have to trust in our flesh in that way, but the flesh can be so tempting. Abraham was a typical guy. And she said, here, let's trust in our flesh. It'll be fun. Verse 6, so Abraham said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So Abraham doesn't step up to take responsibility at all. He just says, you take care of it. I'm too busy. These sheep aren't going to watch themselves. How do sheep say Merry Christmas in Mexico? Feliz Navidad. Sarah, she gets all mean here. Dealing with the consequences of our sin and our flesh usually brings out anger in us, doesn't it? We get mad at ourselves for doing something so stupid. We get mad at God for allowing us to face consequences. We get mad at anyone who God is using to bring those consequences or even try to help us realize what they have gotten for us. So Hagar runs away. She says, I don't deserve this. I'm out of here. Her response to being treated poorly is running away. But look what happens. Verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. God cares enough to go after her. That's right. The mean, vengeful God of the Old Testament is again, as we've seen over and over and over, acting with love, compassion, and mercy. Sure is the city on the way down to Egypt. So you see here that Hagar, she's, she's running back home. She's on her way back home. Now look at what, look, take a step back and let's look at what's happened. She has been hurt by believers. Those hypocrites. But that's what sin does, even in the church. So she wants nothing to do with believers anymore. You guys have seen the bumper sticker? I'm fine with Jesus. It's all his followers I can't stand. She thinks, or she doesn't think about how much she was involved in this whole mess. She was perfectly willing and happy to have the opportunity to move up in the world, and then she used it to treat Sarah poorly, but she conveniently forgets all of those details of her own life, and she just says, look how poorly they're treating me. Look how I've been wronged by believers. But Jesus goes after the lost sheep. Here, he is this angel of the Lord. Anytime you see an angel of the Lord, anytime you see God appearing in the Old Testament, it is Jesus. It's him appearing before he came as the baby in Bethlehem. So we see Jesus 
going after her because he leaves the 99 to go after the one. That's his character. He's the good shepherd. People leave the church many times because they get hurt, don't they? I I get it. People sin in the church. I sin. We all sin. And I've heard the story dozens, if not hundreds of times. So what do we do? What do I do? Well, when someone's telling me, I just don't go to church because there's so many hypocrites, or because of this, that, or the other, you know, I listen. And I understand. And I care. And then I pray for Jesus to draw them back. For Jesus to go after them. Because he will. I don't have to try to convince them to come back. I don't have to make them feel bad about not coming to church. Good Lord. And I don't write them off or think less of them either. Not at all. Because I've been there. There were times I did not feel like going to church because of the sin of people, right? Jesus came and got me when I was worse than lost, when I was anti, when I hated him. He came after me. He can get them. I'm just going to pray that I can be involved with that. And how can I be involved? By loving them. By loving them. I'm not going to bash them. I want to love them. That's the heart of the Lord. In verse 8, it says, And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, Where have you come from and where are you going? Maybe he was just listening to Cotton Eye Joe. You'll get that one as you sing the song. Uh, He asks her, take inventory of your life. You came out of Egypt. Now you want to go back to Egypt? Why? They didn't even want you. They gave you as a gift to Abraham who they hated. They said, how can we really make Abraham suffer? Abraham has been such a jerk to us. Abraham's such a sinner. I hate Abraham so much. What can we do? Let's give her Hagar. That's how much they hated her. (laughs) Why would you want to go back there? No matter how bad the church may get corrupted, it's still the group that God chooses to use and to save people in the world. They start praying. The church, maybe it gets off track, but, but people in the church start praying. They start seeking the Lord, and Jesus works, and he brings revival. He starts using the church. That's how it works. God knows how to purify his church. He's quite good at it. And so God, he comes to Hagar, Jesus, and he says, why do you want to go back there? The believers actually do care about you. I know that they've messed up. I know Abraham is not walking in the spirit right now. But I've still chosen him. And I want you to be with him. She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. She said, I don't like that lady. She's mean. She sins. She makes me not want to be around God's people. And that's real. But it's not right. Because verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Hagar, 
you need to be with her. I want my people together. I rescued you, Hagar. I brought you out of Egypt. I don't want you going back. I know Sarah as being a goober. But you got to go back. The way to fix this situation is not running away. But how many times have I used that to try to fix situations in my life? How many times has running away been my salvation? No, the answer is actually humility. Submission, he says. That's what Jesus tells her is the way to fix this whole problem. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. This heart of humility, this heart that we read in Colossians and that Jesus tells Hagar, it fixes everything. Man, humility is the medicine for relationships. Proverbs says a soft answer turns away wrath. Humility is the heart of Jesus. And as we follow him and learn of him and grow to love him, we begin to have that heart grow inside us. And it's really a deathful heart. It's, it's a heart that can only be developed when we're willing to die. Because when I have to humble myself over my wife, who's clearly wrong about something, I have to literally die inside a little bit. And I have to say, it doesn't matter if I win this argument. What matters is me treating you with love and humility. So would you forgive me for being prideful or for doing this, that, or the other, even when I know she's wrong? It, it causes me to die. But you know what it also it causes? It causes Jesus' life to flow into mine. Because he can't get in when my heart is so full of pride. But when I just empty myself, let that part die, he can flood in with his grace. And it fixes relationships. Husbands, wives, employees, bosses, glorify God with a heart of humility. It's the right thing to honor God. And that's what the angel tells Hagar to do. So then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not even be counted for multitude. Her descendants or the, this child that she's going to have, Ishmael, is going to be all the Arab nations of the world that we have today. And they have been very blessed. Because as God was speaking to her and he told her, you need to humble yourself, she did. And it shows us that there is great blessings that follow humility. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man, and he shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. So this is a very 
uh, important section of Scripture when you think of prophecy and all the end times events that we see. But basically, we see here that Ishmael is going to be a man who's not too concerned with the things of God. And I want you to remember this, because as we progress through these chapters, we're going to see Ishmael and Isaac and how they, they go in two separate directions. And we're going to see all throughout the whole Bible, this is a huge, huge picture for us. And we're going, to, we're going to see this, that Isaac speaks of the Spirit and walking after God in the Spirit, and Ishmael speaks of the flesh and walking after God, or walking after the flesh and what we can get in this life. And so Ishmael is not going to be a man who's too concerned about the things of God. He's going to be a man of this world, a man who knows how to fight and get what he wants. But God still has a huge plan for him. God is going to bless him because God loves him, and God loves the Arab people. And there are many Arabs getting saved, and many who have been saved. But in the picture, we're going to see, and we're going to come back to this many times. So over the following weeks, I want you to remember this. How did, Abra- how did Ishmael, how did it all come to pass? We're going to come back to that many times. So stay tuned. Verse 13. Then she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, and she called him, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well of that place, that spring, was called Be'er Lehoi Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bored. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abraham named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. You are the God who sees, is what she calls God. What is Hagar excited about? What has, what has she learned about God and his character that really sticks with her? Why does she give him a name? You are the God who sees. It's that, that he sees all that she goes through, all that she's done, and he still wants her. He still desires her to be on his team. That's what impressed her so much. She's like, did you just see that I ran away from the people of God? That I have committed adultery? That I have sinned so greatly? And what blessed her so much and gave her the heart to be willing to go back in humility was that God said, I do see and I still want you. And that, that rocked her world. This is the love of God, that he sees me as I am, and he still loves me and has a plan to bless me, even though he sees the wickedness of my heart. I don't have to earn the blessings of God by my own efforts. I can just entrust myself to God who wants to bless me. All that Hagar did was believe. And God pronounced and gave blessings and caused her to be fruitful. I place myself in his hands through humbly accepting and living in my circumstances. God gives grace to the humble. So how should differences in the church be handled? Like that. How should differences in your family be be handled? With humility accepting that this is where God has you and that God will bless you if your heart responds to that challenge in humility. 
The well is called Be'er Lahoi Roy, which you could translate after a bunch of, after looking at the words, you could translate it like this, saying, after the vision of God, my life is preserved. After the vision of God, my life is preserved. When we have this new vision or new understanding of God that, that he just loves you and he just wants to bless you, if you'll humble yourself before him, our life is now in a place to be preserved, kept, guarded, and blessed. That's what puts us in that place is when we have vision or understanding of God's character. If we, here's a quote from, from Barnhouse. It says, if we seek to change our circumstances, we jump from the frying pan into the fire. We must be triumphant exactly where we are. It's not a change of climate we need, but a change of heart. The flesh wants to run away, but God wants to demonstrate his power exactly where we know our greatest chagrin. He actually used the word chagrin. I like that. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want God to give you his grace? It is not found in another place than where you're at right now. But you don't know my marriage. You don't know my boss. You don't know my sicknesses or my struggles or my pain. I don't. But I know God's power overwhelms all of them. And his grace is greater than every single one of them. And if we would choose to humble ourselves and seek him in those places, that he could radically transform our hearts so that those places turn into a blessing. Learn about his character. Humbly walk with him, even if other people on your team treat you poorly. This is the huge lesson of this chapter, that God wants to bless you. And you have the choice to receive that blessing by walking close to him, or you can throw it away by trying to obtain it through fleshly efforts like Abraham and Sarah did, or by running away like Hagar did. Again, God wants to bless you, but you can throw it away by trying to obtain it and you're trying to figure out the way, trying to work it out in your flesh, or by just running away. Neither one of them keep you close to God, keep you dependent on him. Being blessed, again, does not depend on you. Your only responsibility is to humbly trust the Lord. Abide in him. And that's actually relatively easy because it's free. It's not fair. You can abide in him even if you're a sinner. God gives grace to the humble it's his way of blowing our minds. So as we, we're going to have a time of communion now, and so um, would you guys all stand up with me? As we get ready to take communion and as we get ready to practically do something that shows that we are humbly accepting our circumstances, humbly trusting the Lord, this is what it is. This is our practical way of saying, God, I trust you and I believe in you. And my ways don't get things done. But you know what does get things done? His body and his blood. That got something done. That got it done for me. In fact, he said, Jesus even said himself, 
It is finished. What else needs to be done? Nothing. Believe and receive. That's what we do as the church of God. So if you believe in Jesus Christ and you want to hang on to him and his works, then you are welcome to come and take communion during our time of, uh, of singing this last song. So we're gonna, I'm going to read one more scripture to us as, as, the, as Jarrett comes up to sing with us and to lead us in a song of worshiping Jesus. I'm going to read Isaiah 25, verse 4. And it says, For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. God becomes for us a wall around us for all our troubles, all of our trials, all of our suffering, everything that we're going through, all the crazy people we have to deal with at work, all our wild family members who drive us nuts, all our hundreds of children. God becomes for us a wall when we, not to keep those things away from us, but to, to protect us from harm, to keep us in the place where the blessings are flowing down upon us. I want to be blessed. I know you guys do too. So we have to be vigilant like Abraham wasn't. When the options of the flesh come and say, hey, you could get this, just do a little bit of this. You could have it. We need to trust the Lord. And when that temptation comes that says, hey, you just run away, just get away. You don't need all those people. They don't really care about you. And it's, the, it's tempting to send us back to the world that hates us. We've got to be vigilant. So let's pray and let's worship the Lord and take communion I'll dismiss you guys after that. Father, we, we trust you. Lord, we believe in the promise that you made, that God, that, that you'll provide everything that we need. God, that there is no weapon formed against us that can prosper. We're basically nothing in our life can get between you and me even my own sin. Even when I feel like I can't approach you because I have sinned and I have tarnished my own soul, God, you cleanse me. You fix me. You, you purify me as I believe in your work on the cross. It, it cleanses me new. It makes me new every day. Lord, help us to believe more. Help us to have your Holy Spirit reveal the scriptures to us and help us to know, God, your blessings. Lord, I pray for those who have been waiting and or continuing to wait in patience for, for your promises to come into their life. And God, I pray you would answer them quickly. I, Lord, we need so much a quick answer sometimes just to know that you're there. And Lord, I pray for quick answers today. And Lord God, I thank you for the times that we have to wait. I thank you for the times where, where you say, just hold on, just hang on. I'm working through some things in the background, deep underground that you'll never understand, and you'll never know, but I haven't forgotten about you. 
And I pray you would give us a heart to endure and a heart to love and a heart to humble ourselves, to wait for you in those difficult times. Because God, you promise us that it will be worth it if we wait for you. So God, we, we stand upon that promise. When our hearts fail, I pray you would you come in with your Holy Spirit and just give us new hearts. Father, we believe that you chose to send your Son to us to provide the way for blessing. And, and God, we know that your heart is to bless us. You want to bless us. Help us to receive those by faith. Help us to believe and to put our doubts away, but to know, God, that you trust us. I pray, God, for everyone in here. I pray if there's anyone in here who has never responded to your call that you made on the cross, I pray that they would take this moment now to say, I believe that Jesus was my substitute on the cross. That my punishment, my sin earned for me death, but Jesus drank, drank that cup down to the, all the way. And he paid the price for my sin, and I believe. And I ask that you would forgive me, God, because of that. Lord, I pray for anyone in here who's, who's wrestling through that and who is coming to a place where they now believe, I pray that they would be bold about proclaiming that. And saying, I have been forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross for me. Lord, fill us all with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.